Good morning. My name's Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I want to add my greeting to Sam's. If you brought a copy of the Bible, please find our gospel reading, John chapter 20. John, the gospel of John chapter 20. As you're turning there, just a quick reminder of what we're up to in this series of sermons. When Jesus began his ministry... In Matthew's gospel, he started by saying in a sermon that the church is a shining city on a hill. And then, remarkably, Jesus ends the Bible in the book of Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, with this same description. He describes the church as a city on a hill. And so we've been looking to the Bible for God's wisdom on what it means for us to be God's shining city on a hill at this moment during the time of coronavirus and contentious politics and economic stress and racial tension. And in the sermon this morning, we turn our attention to the very first week in the life of the church, the very first week after Jesus' resurrection. Now, Sam just read this, uh, the, the story of that week to us from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 29. And the chapter begins with one paragraph describing the resurrection. And then we get three quick stories. Jesus encountering Mary Magdalene after he's raised from the dead. Jesus encountering the disciples. And then Jesus encountering Thomas. And what I want us to see this morning is that some of what the earliest followers were experiencing in that initial week after the resurrection, some of what they went through is what we are going through in this moment of the pandemic and the politics and all this stuff. All right, so here's the context. John chapter 19, Jesus is crucified died, and he's buried. Then in the first paragraph of John chapter 20, he's resurrected. That's verses 1 to 10. And immediately following that, he has these three encounters. In verses 11 through 18, we see Jesus with Mary Magdalene. It's the first Easter day. And what is she doing when Jesus walks up on her? Notice verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And in that earth-shattering moment, Jesus came to her. He met her. He spoke to her. And he comforted her. That's verses 14 to 16. And then in verse 17, Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. So here we have Jesus giving Mary a commission to go and tell the disciples that he's alive and that he is now to be enthroned as the world's true Lord. All right, so in this scene, we see a particular intense characteristic of the environment that the church began in. The church began in sorrow. 
It began in tears. There's this overwhelming sorrow and confusion that Mary is going through. And that's something that our world is experiencing to a significant degree right now. Next, we have Jesus' encounter with the disciples, verses 19 to 23. And here are the disciples, all except Thomas, and they're locked into a house. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, it's still the same day, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear, fear of the Jews. So they're locked in this room because they're afraid that the people who had come after Jesus would soon be coming after them because that's the normal pattern of events in that society when there's a perceived rebellion. And Jesus was crucified. It was a political charge, a political judgment, and a political execution. So they were next in line. So they're locked in. They're afraid. And this second characteristic of the culture in which the church was birthed, the quality of fear. This is something our world is going through today. And notice, just like the tears didn't stop Jesus from coming to meet Mary, here the locked doors and the fear doesn't stop Jesus from coming to meet the disciples. He came, he stood with them, and he comforted them. Notice the end of John chapter 20, verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad that they had saw, that they saw the Lord. And what happens next is just like what he did with Mary Magdalene. After comforting, he gives a mission. Verse 21, as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now the third scene in John's gospel after the resurrection is verses 24 to 29. And here we're dealing with Thomas and his famous doubts. Notice verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, yeah, right. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the marks of the nails and place my hands in his side. I'm not believing you lot. That's crazy talk. People don't rise from the dead. They knew that then like we know that now. So in verse 26, Jesus comes to the disciples a second time. And this time, doubting Thomas is with them. And at the end of verse 26, Jesus said to Thomas, peace be with you. And then in verse 27, he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, what a remarkable moment, right? Caravaggio's famous painting on the front of our worship guide, capturing this incredible moment. Here is Jesus showing Thomas the scars that prove his identity and the wounds that reveal his love. So there you have it. The very first week of the life of the church. And it is a week filled with tears and locked doors and doubts. Three different ways of really saying the same thing. And together they sum up a lot of what we're going through right now. Tears and plenty. In our own church, the death of Patrick on February the 15th. And then my mother's death on April the 19th. 
And then the death of Sandra Gulliver's mother on September the 30th. And the list just gone on and on. There is so much suffering. So many lives being cut short. And then there's the stress and the distress of millions who are shut in without company or help or at the mercy of an abusive partner or losing jobs and livelihoods or simply those whose temperament has plunged them into gloom after being confined to their homes. So for so many of us, this is the most intense and the longest season of suffering that has ever been experienced in our lifetimes. And then there's the locked doors. I mean, literally happening right now in our culture. We're living through a whole series of threats that taken together are, are more fear-inducing than any moment we've experienced in our life. And it's not just the coronavirus. It's the fear of Republicans. And the fear of Democrats and the fear of secular dogma or the fear of religious dogma or the fear of economic ruin or job loss or systemic racism or anarchy or mob violence, fear of police brutality, fear of the cancel culture, fear of violence following the election and weaving in and through all of these fears is this nebulous fear that our culture, our society, our government, our communities are fragile and that they are coming apart. And finally, there is the doubt. It's like this weed growing right up in the crack between weeping and fear, between the despair and the suffering. No matter how big your imagination is, you should not be able to easily absorb the immensity of the catastrophes spreading around our world this year. Is there any room left for hope? Is there in our isolation and our political polarization, is there any room for love? And where is God in all of this? Is he here? Does he really exist? How can anybody reconcile a belief in a God of mercy with the horrors going on in our world? There is, in this moment, a real spiritual perplexity. And for some, it is getting so hard to believe that Jesus really is God. Now, these are hard questions. And to be a city on a hill right now, for the church to be a shining city on the hill, means we should be good at answering those questions. That's the darkness that the shining city on a hill the church should be going to. We should, like Jesus, not be shying away from the tears or the fears or the doubts, but we should be moving toward them. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus tells his disciples to do. It's what he told the disciples to do for the world in verse 21. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Sending us to what? To the tears and the locked doors and the fear and the doubts. So in verse 21, when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, he is telling us, look, everything I've been doing, this is what the Father sent me to you for, and now it is your turn. The church in Harrisonburg is to be for this city and this community what Jesus was for Israel. 
And so what exactly does that mean and how does it help us today? Well, two things I think in this particular moment that we're living through. First of all, it means we are being sent into our community with a unique perspective on suffering. And secondly, it means we are being sent with a unique reaction to that suffering. This week, I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about the unique Christian perspective on suffering that we have to offer. Next week, it'll be the unique reaction to suffering. The unique Christian perspective on suffering that the Bible gives us in its long story, climaxing in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is this. In the midst of suffering, Christians are people of hope. But our hope is not based on the view that suffering has meaning or value. It does not. Our hope is based on the crucifixion as a judgment of suffering. On the cross and in the resurrection, God saves the world. Not by explaining suffering, but by judging evil. Not all suffering is meaningful. The deepest sufferings and the worst evils rarely have any meaning or any redemptive value. And yet we have hope in the midst of suffering. Christians are often tempted to give meaning to suffering by bypassing the cross. Christians are often tempted to give meaning to suffering through various explanations. But the only meaning to evil and suffering we can really embrace is that on the cross, Jesus judged evil and death as absurd. And he won the victory over them as imposters. Now, this is something that's really hard to understand, but it's so important for us if we're going to be a light shining in the darkness right now. We've got to learn how to look at suffering through the cross and through the resurrection, not in spite of the cross or in spite of the resurrection. To help us understand better the unique Christian view of suffering, I want to pick on two sub-Christian views or two false Christian views. The first one, the first temptation so many people face when they're trying to endure suffering, then when they're trying to endure it, is they, they think that if I can find the blame for it, then somehow I'll be able to cope with it. Have you ever found yourself when you suffer something really bad thinking, well... <laughs> I probably deserved it. Have you ever seen someone going through something terrible and your kind of instinct was like Job's friends? Well, there must be some logic behind this. After all, we're all sinners. In Luke chapter 13, some folks come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, they ripped this from the headlines. Pilate had killed a bunch of people. They say, they, they bring this up to Jesus and they ask him basically, who's at fault? And Jesus said, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered this? In other words, do you think that that suffering is somehow connected to sin? And his answer is, absolutely, it is not. 
That is not a helpful way to come and comfort somebody in their suffering. Too many Christians make it sound like we believe in some sort of baptized karma. That we're all sinners and so we think about the painful stuff in our lives as maybe punishment. And many Christians have this view of God that he's dishing out punishment and reward according to what we deserve. So God is like the great karma manager, balancing accounts. But Jesus flatly rejects this view and he rejects any easygoing vending machine theology. Sin in, punishment out. Now, can you suffer as a consequence of sin? Absolutely. But trying to connect those up, the book of Job is a big, flat, cut it out. There is more to this universe than you can see under a microscope or with a moral system. Does God ever punish us for our sins? Absolutely. But as a rule of thumb, this is not a helpful thing to use when we're trying to deal with suffering. Remember when we, read the, when we read the Bible as a single story beginning with God's good creation that's broken by the mysterious intrusion of the alien imposter known as evil and death. I mean, we know that Adam and Eve sinned, but where did the snake come from? Right? That's the question. None of us know. The Bible never tells us. It never gives an explanation for the arrival on the scene of evil. It starts showing us the consequence of evil. This mysterious intrusion of this alien imposter into God's good and beautiful and just creation. This, this imposter known as evil and death. That's the story the Bible tells us. And we ultimately see God dealing with evil and death. Not by explaining it, but by judging it on the cross and vindicating Jesus in the resurrection. That God saves the world by judging evil. In Jesus, God is coming to the world of death for the purpose not of explanation, but of conquest and victory. That's the gospel. The first false approach to suffering is to move toward it with a kind of causal explanation that it's rooted in sin. The second wrong approach to suffering, the first one is sin, the second one is sovereignty. Many people were brought up to believe that whatever the disaster, whatever we've gone through, the comfort is that God is sovereign. And so trust that even though we can't see it now, one day we will understand how this terrible thing that happened to us is somehow something God intended for our betterment. But in the Bible, that's not how God responds to evil and suffering. We don't see God looking at evil and suffering and saying, I got this. I'm using this. This is part of my plan. Instead, we see God responding to evil and suffering with shock and grief. Many things shock God in the Bible. There are many things in the Bible happening that's causing suffering that God doesn't want to happen. It was not his plan. You see, God's sovereignty is not an iron grip relentlessly controlling everything. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, God sees the wickedness of humans and he does not say, I'm doing this, I'm using this. Instead, he says, that's awful. Instead, it says his heart can't even imagine that that would have happened. Proper Christian theology does not believe that all suffering serves a larger purpose. 
That all things will somehow fit together into God's plan. That behind the monstrous violence is a loving God. No. If that's the case, then behind the monstrous violence is a monstrous God. See, proper Christian theology does not believe that all suffering somehow serves God's larger purpose. That all things fit together into God's larger plan. That behind this violence, behind every mother buried, behind the randomness of the coronavirus, that over and above all of this is a kind God with a loving hand guiding us to a better place. Now, don't get me wrong. God is sovereign. Absolutely. That's just the wrong way to apply his sovereignty. At the end of the day, when it comes to evil and suffering, there is such a thing as indiscriminate, blameless suffering, random illness, abusive violence, disasters of various kinds. Evil has no contribution to God's world. It is an attack on God's world. And God saves us not by using evil, but by condemning it. Our job, therefore, is to hate evil. Hate death. Not understand it. Not explain it away. The work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection is the work of judgment and victory. That is the gospel. So our hope is not in God being behind the suffering. Our hope is not that one day we'll discover that God had a plan for us that required us to suffer the evil. No, what we see in John chapter 20 and in Revelation chapter 21 is that evil and death are damnable imposters. Scripture does not tell us that in the new heavens and new earth, God will reveal that amazing passage Ed read to us. Revelation 21, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It doesn't say anything about explaining the evil. It doesn't say anything about how these tragedies that we live through will suddenly be seen as part of God's plan. No, that is not at all the move it makes. What we see when we see Jesus talking to Mary and the disciples and to Thomas and then in Revelation 21 is we see that our God has opened the door to the new creation and one day God will finally and fully strike off the chains in which creation languishes and then all will be radiant with the beauty of God in every part, an endless sea of glory, innocent of all violence, beautiful, As in the beginning of days. And in that day when all things are made new. Rather than showing us. That the tears of a girl. Suffering in the dark. Were necessary for building the kingdom. He will instead raise that little girl up. And wipe every tear from her eye. That's what it says in Revelation 21. It says there shall be no more death. Nor sorrow. Nor crying. Nor any more pain. For the former things will have passed away. And he that sits upon the throne will say. Behold I make all things new. You see Christianity is not optimism. It is resurrection hope. 
At the heart of the gospel is a conviction that the victory over evil and death has been won, but it is also a victory that is yet to come. And as we saw a few weeks ago in Romans, all of creation still groans in in an anguished anticipation of the day when God's glory will transform all things. And for now, we live in the strife of darkness and light. And so in moments like we're living through, with the sheer savage immensity of suffering in our world today, no Christian should ever say that all of this somehow serves God's purpose. We are to hate death. And we are to hate the waste And the powerful forces that are shattering living souls. We Christians, we recognize that our world is divided between two kingdoms. Knowing all the while that it is only crucifixion love and resurrection hope that can sustain us until the end of days. The immensity of suffering we're going through. Physically suffering from a virus, corporately suffering from systemic racism, economically suffering from loss of jobs, emotionally suffering from isolation, and so much more. The pain in our world right now is unimaginable. It does not have a meaning. It does not serve a larger purpose. We cannot comfort ourselves by thinking that all of the cruelty and misery, the catastrophe and betrayal is somehow part of God's plan. We should not ever deal with the pain of a child dying an agonizing death from diphtheria or a young mother ravaged by cancer or tens of thousands of Asians swallowed up in an instant by the sea. Of of millions murdered in death camps and gulags and forced famines. The comfort God offers is not the comfort that any of that serves his mysterious plan. It is the cosmic struggle between good and evil. And what we see in John chapter 20 and in Revelation 21 is that Christ has won the victory over the dark forces of this world. He has overthrown hell. He did this on the cross. And that is how we are saved. And we are made able by grace to enter God's kingdom. Jesus came to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin and the emptiness of death. And so we're permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. Because while we know that the victory over evil and death has been won, we know also that it is a victory yet to come and that creation is still groaning. The reason the church shines in the darkness of suffering is because of the hope that we know from the pattern of Jesus' life. Jesus' life shows us that you may well be innocent and still brutally Violated. In the face of this overwhelming darkness, there remains the steadfast hope, though, not that it will make sense, but that the resurrection of Jesus will be true of us. Christ was crucified and raised. And that is how the church is able to be a shining city on a hill in the midst of the darkest night. Because whenever we suffer crucifixion, we hold fast to the hope of resurrection. God himself took on flesh to judge evil and suffering and death once and for all and to refashion creation 
after its ancient beauty, wherein there is neither sin nor death. And at the end of the day, in our tears and fears and doubts, the resurrected Jesus comforts us. Sin, he forgives. Suffering, he heals. Evil, he casts out. And death, he conquers. Let's pray.